Hi, this is Robert Cunningham, pastor of Preaching and Vision at Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church. We want to thank you for listening to this resource, and we hope and pray it will be a blessing to you. One quick word, though, before you listen. While we are honored to be a resource for you, we do want you to know that an online sermon is no substitute for congregational life. It's a good supplement, but what you need more than anything else is membership and involvement in a local church. If you are not a member of TCPC, I want you to know that listening to your pastor is far more valuable than listening to this. If you are a member of TCPC, I want you to know that joining us in worship on Sunday is far more valuable than listening online. So to everyone, we are encouraged that you have sought us out, but much more encouraging would be for you to seek out a local church community. That said, thanks for listening, and may God now bless you as you do. Uh, please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8 as we um, move into chapter 8 of Acts. While you're turning there, uh, one quick announcement that Mark did not make, but um, he really would want it made, um, is that today is Rev. Randall's birthday. So happy birthday, Mark. Um, you might say, does a birthday really require a church announcement? Um, if you know Mark, yes, it does. <laughs> Nobody loves his birthday more than this man. So we love you. Uh, is this enough? Do I have to keep going? Okay, all right, all right. Yeah, there you go. Clap for Rev. Randall. They have not one time clapped for me. Eight years at this senior minister of this church, I've never gotten a clap. And eh, story of my life. Everybody loves Mark. All right, Acts chapter 8, and the most untimely passage after that. (laughs) But this is God's word, let's set our hearts upon it. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out, with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. The word of the Lord. <clears throat> we believe, O oh God, by faith that when we, your people, gather together with hungry hearts to be fed by the nourishment that is your word, We believe, Holy Spirit, that you will feed us. And so we ask that you would come and attend to the preaching of your word. That I would do it well, both in content and in clarity and in compassion. And where I fail, that your grace would cover over. But that your people would be different because they came to church today. We trust you with that. 
we know you love to answer this prayer specifically. And so would you come and be with us now in Jesus' name, amen. If you are, um, if you're keeping up with my podcast, and it's okay if you're not, but um, if you're keeping up with the podcast this week, I picked up a story that's, that's taken place in our culture that many people may not be aware of, but um, a lot of us are, um, about two guys named Rhett and Link, and, um, and I'm not going to go through the whole thing. You, you can go listen to the podcast, and, um, and I'm actually doing a follow-up on it this week as well, and you can hear kind of my response to them and the history of it all. Not going to do that, but just for the sake of setting the stage, um, these are two guys that were one time on staff at Campus Crusade for Christ, an evangelical uh, campus ministry. Uh, Nate Jones uh, was on staff at UK for many years, and so many students, and so many of you are here at the church now because of crew. Amazing ministry. Well, Rhett and Link were um, campus ministry workers, uh, giving their life away to Jesus, giving their life away to evangelizing college students. Long story short, they, they got into um, entertainment and ended up hitting it big. They're now huge celebrities, um, 16 million followers, uh, big time entertainment stars. And they had not talked about their faith. Um, their content is clean, but they had not talked about their faith uh, much. So, but the past month, they came out with kind of a four-part podcast series um, where they took the public down the journey of their deconversion and um, them renouncing Jesus and why, that, why they chose to do that. And, and you can go listen to that. And again, you can listen to my response. But for us this morning, um, I ended up listening to a follow-up interview this week from them, not on their podcast, but, but one they did with somebody else. And quite honestly, they, they, they talked a lot more openly about it, particularly about the reaction that they've gotten from um, Christians and uh, to be fair, a lot of the reaction has, has, has not been charitable at all. Some of it's been downright nasty. Um, and so they're, they're processing this and, and talking about their story. And, and then they get to talking about, Rhett in particular gets to talking about um, his changed views on sexuality and the role that that played in his deconversion. And he started um, getting more militant than he was in his podcast where he talked about it. He was very charitable in his podcast about Christianity and stuff when he talked about losing his faith. But in this interview, he, he got, he got um, aggressive. And I just want to quote him here to set the scene. Speaking to Christians, he said this. You guys just don't get it. Can't you see that you guys have lost? History is going to leave you behind. You can get into your little crevice and hold out as long as you want to, but... To paraphrase, the culture has won. And here's what I want to ask this morning. Do you agree with him? I wonder if in the back of our minds, we think he's right. We think he's on to something. And not just about the sexual ethic stuff. I'm talking about the bigger picture here. That history is going to leave us behind. Um, we can hold on to our little crevice of a Christian bubble as long as we want, but for all intents and purposes, it's over. We lost. I wonder, none of us would say that, but I wonder deep within our granted cynical hearts if we suspect there's some truth to that. Well, before you answer that, 
Let's look at our passage this morning. Because it's going to answer the question for us. Perhaps not the way we want it answered. Because in it, we see the world win. And the church lose. Or so it seems. We're going to see two things. The world's persecution. The Lord's revolution. Let's start with what is obvious. Things got bad. And they got bad very quickly. The world's persecution. Verse 1. And Saul approved of his, that is Stephen from last week, execution. So the text last week briefly mentioned Saul, um, but here we come to his really official introduction. And, and really from here on out, uh, the book of Acts is going to be telling his story. So it's really important that we understand who this guy is because he is obviously uh, massively important, not just to the book of Acts, but to all of Christendom. So who is Saul? I don't want to assume everyone here knows that answer. Now, uh, first and foremost, Saul is Paul, um, if you didn't know that. I, I, hate to burst, uh, I hate to burst your bubble if you've heard this before, but Saul was Paul his whole life, um, not just after his conversion. It makes for a good sermon to say that uh, after his conversion, Jesus renamed Saul to Paul. Uh, that's not the case. Uh, Saul is his Hebrew name. Paul is the Koine Greek translation of that name. So the reason why the name Paul comes up so much more going forward is because he takes the gospel to the Gentiles, to the Roman world, um, and he's in a Greco-Roman setting, and so he uses that name more than Saul. But Saul will still continue to come up. So Saul and Paul, same person. Uh, He's born in Tarsus, a very affluent, highly educated uh, city in Asia Minor, and because of where he was born, um, he also had Roman citizenship, which was really important. Um, as to his Jewish heritage, he was exceedingly devout. He called himself a Hebrew of Hebrews, the most zealous Pharisee you can find. And so if you take the cultural influence, education, and affluence of his upbringing along with his Roman citizenship combined with his incredible religious zeal, it's no surprise that he has risen to be a highly, highly influential leader. And perhaps nowhere do we see um, how highly regarded he was as a leader more than in the fact that it is him who has taken upon himself to, to crush this newfound movement that is taking over the Jewish world. And there's no other way to read it He was ruthless. Let's read for ourselves. And there arose on that day, that so that day of Stephen's martyrdom ignited an entire movement of persecution. A great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made an attempt and, and made great lamentations over him. But Saul was ravaging. That, that is a, um, that's as good of an attempt at the Greek as, as any. The word is very strong, um, communicating just total destruction. Saul was determined to utterly destroy the church. Now, how's he going to do it? Well, it's really simple. Anyone who named Jesus Lord was in trouble. Look at it. In entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. It's the and women thing that shows us how bad this truly was. In that day when there was a movement um, that you wanted to put an end to, typically you would take out the leadership and that would be the end of the movement. 
Um, sometimes, depending on the strength of the movement, you would take out not just the, not just the leaders, uh, but the men as well. But Saul is dragging even the women off to prison. And that's not for imprisonment, by the way. Um, that's to put them in chains and demand they recant of Jesus, or if not, their fate was to be the fate of Stephen's. So this, this is Saul saying, enough is enough. I am going to utterly annihilate this Jesus thing before it can go any further. And it would seem that he has succeeded. Up to this point, Christianity is a centralized revival growing by the thousands in Jerusalem, which is the center of religious influence. And what's even more troubling is that the establishment itself has no ability to keep this thing under control. The high priest, the council, all of them don't know what to do with this movement. They can't stop it. And this is why there was such alarm among the Jews. It would be akin to a revolution taking place in Washington, D.C., in the streets, by the thousands, growing in number every day, and the government itself has no ability to keep this under control. That's what was happening in Jerusalem from Pentecost up into this point. And so as a Christian, you're looking at this and saying, this is amazing, we're taking over Jerusalem. Well, it would seem that Saul has saved the day, at least from their perspective. House to house, is the only way we're going to stop this is this. We're going house to house. Everyone arrested, and those who weren't arrested are forced to flee the city, and so now it's just this scattered, persecuted minority spread throughout the less influential regions of society. And if you're watching this unfold um, from purely a circumstance perspective, then this is all bad. This, This is awful. It could not get worse. And we must appreciate that in order to appreciate what happens next. If you were there, if you were in this, you would literally be saying, it could not get worse than this. And perhaps in the back of your mind, you'd be thinking it's all over. What we thought was going to be this thing that just took over the world, in a moment, it's all done. And Christianity isn't going to survive. Well, things are not as they seem. Let's watch the Lord do what he loves to do. We've seen the world's persecution. Now, let's watch it lead to the Lord's revolution. Look at verse 4. Now, those who were scattered about, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. That that seemingly innocuous verse is, is actually massively significant. Like I said, up until this point, Christianity was a centralized movement, growing um, strength in the center of religious influence. It would seem to us that that would be a good thing. But in reality, what the, what, the, what the movement needed was to be dispersed. And so Saul, the enemy of the church, has unwittingly released the church upon the ancient world. In my studies of the passage, I, just, I was so struck by the contrast between verse 3 and 4. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And then without missing a beat, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. As if to say, no big deal. Saul ravages the church, but the church just spreads out and keeps preaching the word. It's almost callous to the situation. 
Not recognizing the severity and the suffering and the horror of what this is. Men and women dragged off to prison to either renounce the faith or be killed. Those not in prison fleeing in a hurry, leaving their house behind, their possessions behind, perhaps even family and certainly friends and community in order to escape. This is awful stuff. But the way Luke tells it, it's almost as if he sees no problem here. And the point is that what seems to us to be worst case scenario is simply used by God's providence to further his greater purposes. God's not panic in the least because of Saul. In fact, Saul, it seems, is simply doing the Lord's bidding. And if your theology can't make sense of that, then you're going to have a hard time reading the Bible. Because these types of developments are all over it. God uses the things he hates to accomplish the things he loves. Time and time again in scripture, worst case scenarios are proven to be the scenarios, the very scenarios that in the end yield God's greatest purposes. You meant it for evil, says Joseph to his brothers who sold him into slavery and he ended up in prison and horrific story, but God meant it for good. Both of those can be true. Both means you meant evil, God meant good can simultaneously coexist without any indictment upon God's sovereignty and providence. And this is just another example. Saul meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. And the good is that, um, probably a terrible illustration, but like the coronavirus, the gospel is no longer contained. It's just unimpeded. It's just gone from ground zero to like throughout the ancient world. Only this outbreak leads to the healing of the world. Luke focuses in on one such case to show us the impact of the persecuted church's dispersion. And it's beautiful. Verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Now something enormous just took place in church history. And if we don't know the context, it's so easy to miss. Here's what you need to know. Jews hated Samaritans. I'm not going to go into the background of that story. Just know it is a malicious divide. This is, the scan- this, this, is why, this is why there's so much scandal to the parable of the Good Samaritan, where Jesus uses the most hated figure to be a picture of the most loving figure. And we have to understand that up until this point, Christianity is a Jewish movement. Revival has taken place in Jerusalem. It is Jews who are being converted. And what it seems to be at this point of the story is a Jewish reformation. Jews are discovering that, oh, yes, Jesus of Nazareth is risen from the dead and is indeed the Messiah of Israel. And in the Jewish line of thinking, that would mean that this Jesus messianic movement was destined to yield Jewish victory over all her enemies. And so the assumption was that Christianity, which doesn't sound like a a Jewish word at all to us, but it's Christianity, Messiah-ianity, would take over Jerusalem and then... From there, under the banner of their risen and reigning Messiah, would launch the campaign of Israel's domination. And 
First up would be those awful neighbors in Samaria. That line of thinking is far more dangerous to the church than Saul's persecution. And without Saul's persecution that forced the dispersion of the early church, Christianity was in danger of becoming a Jewish nationalist movement. But the risen Jesus himself said at the beginning of Acts that you're going to be my witnesses, yes, in Jerusalem. It's going to start at home. I am the Messiah of Israel. And Pentecost will be an outpouring, yes, to Israel. But in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This was never about Israel's world domination. It was about the world's salvation. And if it takes persecution to make that happen, then so be it. Let's watch it take place. Verse 6. The crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Now, once again, if you've been with us in the series, I remind us of the uniqueness of Acts. Don't get hung up on the sensational stuff. This is all meant to mirror the ministry of Jesus. What that, those, that verse sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? That's, that's what happened wherever he went. The point we are supposed to see is that Jesus has come to town. Not to destroy the Samaritans, but to heal them. And then look at this amazing conclusion in verse 8. So there was much joy... In that city. That's poignant. There was much suffering in the city of Jerusalem, but it yielded much joy in that Samaritan city. And so the passage presses in on us with one just vexing, haunting question that we must answer. Was it worth it? It could not be clearer that the providence of God sees this development as a good thing, do we have the courage to agree with God's providence? Is persecution that yields gospel advancement, even unto our enemies, something we can embrace and even bless? This is where things start to get real, friends. Up until this point in Acts, we've been having a lot of fun. It's been a revival. Last week it started to get scary. They stoned Stephen. That's not good. But you know, he's one of the leaders. A leader had to die. Yeah, there's going to be some casualties at the top, I suppose. But then, in just eight verses, the entire story gets thrown into disarray. None are exempt. Everyone who follows Jesus is now facing the cost of following Jesus. Now the rubber meets the road for all of us all of us are now staring down this question, is the Lord's revolution worth the world's persecution? I want to press in on that for application. I want to press in on that both culturally and personally, okay? I felt the need to go big picture and then individually with application. What does the future of Christianity hold for us culturally? Going back to that interview I started with. It would seem, circumstantially, things aren't going well. Okay, granted, nobody's going house to house, dragging us off to prison. But as 
you heard in my podcast this week, if you listen, the secular age is going house to house, dragging the church off into the prison of doubt and unbelief. The sexual revolution is going house to house, dragging the church out, demanding we renounce our sexual ethic or be sent to the prison of cancel culture. The internet is going house to house, dragging the church off into the prison of pornographic addiction. Wealth and greed is going house to house, dragging the church off into the prison of money's enslavement, and it is enslaving. Cable news, blogs, podcasts going house to house, dragging the church off into the prison of partisan hatred. No, we don't have Saul ravaging the church. But it doesn't take a sociologist to see the church in our culture is being ravished. And we might be tempted to run to paranoia and despondency. In fact, that's exactly what we seem to be doing. It seems to me everyone is freaking out. As we see our decline from a moral majority to a persecuted minority. But how many times must God show us in scripture and in history that a persecuted minority is more powerful than a moral majority before we start to believe him? What if this is precisely what comfortable American Christianity needed? What if on the other side of persecution is revolution? Friends, we don't have to ask what if. Because God has answered that question time and time again in scripture and in history. So we don't have to wonder. Instead, we have to fight to actually believe it. We must renounce this pervasive cynicism and and despondency and paranoia. As if Jesus is not risen from the dead. That arrogantly trusts our circumstances more than God's sovereignty. Do you actually think God is freaking out like we are freaking out? Everything's fine. Now, just go be Philip and preach the word in exile. And let's see what happens. So that's culturally. Yeah, it looks bad. Doesn't scare God. It shouldn't scare us. Now, personally, though, it is scary. It's one thing to paint a broad, you know, providential brushstroke of optimism... But I know that many of us, we are feeling the pain of this personally. Okay, a persecuted minority is more powerful than a moral majority, but man, those days a moral majority were comfortable. That was fun. Every single one of us in our own unique way is feeling the discomfort of a church that is being ravished. I just thought through my week. Of what I encountered. I spoke to hundreds of college students on UK's campus this week. And during the Q&A, I could just feel the angst in the room as they asked me, how is it possible for them to actually go out in society with their sexual ethic and not be labeled a complete bigot? I was talking to a grandparent this week who was just so distraught over the world that he, he is leaving to his grandchildren. From the podcast I did this week, I can't tell you how many emails, texts, social media messages from people deeply burdened by someone they loved who has abandoned the faith. I was talking to Marshall, Marshall Wilmhoff this week, and he told me ministering downtown at Hope Perez in that community, without a doubt, the number one question he gets is about sexuality. He said it is new members class. Nobody's asking 
why his church baptizes babies and believes in predestination anymore. It's just, it's just, they want to know one thing. What do you believe about sexuality? What do you believe about gender? We were laughing, Marshall and I were laughing and said, man, we missed the days that people thought we were weird for baptizing babies. Those are good days. Abby and I this week talk about our four boys, the world they're growing up in. I wish I could tell you we were boldly trusting God's promises and quoting scripture to one another and singing a mighty fortress in our, is our God. And we weren't. We were scared. All of us, in some personal way, can see ourselves in this text as Christianity is being ravaged all around us. And so here is my personal question for every single one of us. Are all these circumstances worth God's purposes? Friends, this is, this is when things get real. Sure, we can know that God is in control of the big picture. Sure, I can preach a sermon and show you the big picture and how this all works out. But we got to live in the big picture and come to grips with the big picture. We know how this all works in the end. The church's persecution will yield God's revolution. But in the meantime, we have to embrace the bigger picture. So will you? Before you answer that, let me remind you. That before Jesus asked you to answer that question, he himself answered that same question. Bring us now to the table. Let us never forget that the Jesus we suffer for suffered first. He definitively said that his suffering circumstances, circumstances infinitely worse than anything we will ever face, that his circumstances were worth God's purposes. And do you know what God's purpose was? You. We are the ends of the earth that began in Acts and has now reached. And it all began with a choice in a garden where a troubled Messiah says, I am overwhelmed to the point of death. I don't want this cup. But, Father, not my will, yours be done. And the Lord's will was done. And his will was that his son would bear the fullness of the world's persecution that would give way to the Lord's revolution. A revolution that has reached all the way to you and now calls you to go and do likewise. Jesus asks nothing of us that he has not done for us. He has said, you are worth it. Let us go forth emboldened to say, Jesus is worth it. Let me pray. Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. We trust, oh, for grace to trust you more. We love you. Oh, increase our love. We're devoted to you. Strengthen our devotion. We want this, Lord, but we're scared. Would you? Take all of our fears, all of our doubts, all of our weakness, and would you answer it now with communion? Lord, would you answer it now with that weekly, audacious moment?
Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ shall come again. May we believe it, and may we leave here strengthened in it. Through Christ our Savior we pray, amen.